The following is part one of a three-part series here on Tales from the South. This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. How's everybody doing tonight? So how about tonight's music by the Salty Dogs? Do you like the Salty Dogs? Hailing from Little Rock, Arkansas, the Salty Dogs have shared the stage with Hank Williams Jr., Old Crow Medicine Show, and Kinky Friedman, among many others. They have CDs for sale after the show, and more can be found at thesaltydogs.net. All right, well, welcome to a very special edition of Tales from the South, our Season 10 holiday show where Southerners bring their own true holiday stories to life. We are on location at the historic Capitol Hotel in downtown Little Rock, Arkansas. (laughs) Tales from the South is presented by Temenos Publishing Company and the Midnight Muse Writing Workshops, and I'm your host, Paula martin Morell. What do y'all think about our set back here? Y'all like our set? These Delta screen doors with mixed-media portraiture are by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox from her Images of the American South collection and are for sale. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. Our listeners can find out more about these pieces and V.L. at her website, greatfineart.com. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern-style holiday storytelling? Tonight, our storytellers take us back to holidays past, from Christmas memories to New Year's wishes, and a lot in between. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who lived them. Later tonight, Karen Hicks is just trying to get some Christmas shopping done. And we'll end the night with Helen Austin, but let's start the night here at Tales from the South with Lisa Brandom and a Christmas pageant in and all through the house. Christmas was coming so quickly in the fall of 1979. I wondered if I could get everything done to be able to enjoy the season. After all, I was teaching full-time at a small Christian school in northwest Arkansas, was the mother of a second grader and a sixth grader, was a teacher of Sunday school in the toddler department, And on top of it all, I had just enrolled in a doctoral program at the University of Arkansas. One of my many teaching assignments that fall was being drama teacher at junior high school. Of course, all who have ever worked in such a capacity know that the big expectation is to present a Christmas play to the entire church congregation a week before the holiday. To say I was frazzled would be an understatement. I felt as if I might break into a million little pieces, and I'm sure I uttered my usual cry many times. Lord Jesus, please help me. I had scoured the Christian literature for weeks looking for a good play to present. I finally found it. It was to be a drama that consisted of a split stage. On the left front, a modern-day scenario would take place. A father with his small children sitting cozily near him, preparing to share with the children the real meaning of Christmas. 
not focusing on Santa Claus or the commercial preparations going on in the form of exchanging multiple presents. My own children, however, had been marking and circling possible presents for themselves since September in the J.C. Penney's catalog. The play would center on the story of Jesus' birth. On the right-hand stage, there would magically appear, under the spotlight, a story some 2,000 years ago. The casting call went out, and every student in the drama class was given a role. Though for some of my male students, that meant simply dressing as shepherds or kings, with silence and stillness being the primary means of selection. As in any class, some are extroverts and overacted their tryouts without shame, then badgered me remorsefully until I posted the cast list. My most valuable assistant was to be a young man, not very talented in histrionics, but who proved to be an ace in organizing props and adjusting the sound and light system to perfection. My Mary, mother of the Christ child, would be a 13-year-old responsible young woman who had younger nieces and nephews that she babysat. The winter of 1979 was particularly cold, frosty, and dreary. My husband and I had bought a used Volkswagen van to transport not only our children around, but also students. We used it going to and from play practice for about six weeks, often picking up cast members and taking them home again. By the time of the dress rehearsal, the weatherman had predicted minus five as a low on the night of the play. The excitement of finally reaching dress rehearsal was palpable. The students had finally learned their lines and they were ready to perform. Bit of a technical problem, however, lingered in my head, and I mulled over a possibility I had not thought of before. One of my pet peeves in previous plays about the birth of Jesus was that the teacher or director had always used a baby doll wrapped in a cuddly blanket, but nevertheless, a doll. An idea popped into my head, and before rehearsal that night, I impetuously called a friend of mine who had a new baby, a boy six weeks old. Without pausing, I gushed, Sheila, do you think you would allow baby John to be in our Christmas play tomorrow night? We have a Mary who's quite good with babies and has had a lot of babysitting experiences. I was astonished, frankly, when she agreed to let her precious baby boy, boy play Jesus the next night. As was typical of many dress rehearsals, the final practice was not without its surprises. Mary had only to walk across the stage and place the baby in the wooden crib surrounded by hay bales. With the fake baby doll in her arms, Mary proceeded to trip on a hay bale. The baby doll went flying through the air about six feet like a broken Razorback football toss. The commotion caused by this caused the shepherds and the three kings to dance around wily, knocking one of the stable walls down with a loud crash. While no one was hurt in any way, I knew I would have to do a lot of, Lord Jesus, please help me, before the actual performance. The next night, I watched as the congregation filled the sanctuary noisily. 
The younger children chattering with excited voices and their parents talking to friends. I held my hands tightly through every line of the play, though my right foot seemed to have a mind of its own and swung crazily back and forth. All went well to this point, and I repeatedly told myself, breathe in, breathe out. As Mary walked across the stage, especially for that key scene, and placed baby John in his crib, the soundtrack played the usual version of Silent Night. At this point, baby John began to wave his arms about, seemingly to the beat of the music. The audience was hushed when they realized baby Jesus was a real baby on this bright, clear, and cold December night. One could hear the coos of baby John throughout the sanctuary, and all through the house, the silence became deafening. The final scene of the play arrived, and I again watched with trepidation as my adolescent shepherds and three kings lowered the stable walls to reveal a single cross in the center of the stage, highlighted by a red spotlight. Jesus, our Savior, had symbolically begun his mission on earth. I could breathe again. Lisa Brandom retired to Little Rock 10 years ago to be with her grandchildren. Every day with them is a blessing. Next on Telsh in the South, Karen Hicks heads out on the ice determined to buy Christmas gifts in a very VW Christmas. Southerners are known for doing many things famously. Among those are sweet iced tea, front porch swing conversation, and neighborly kindness. However, in the winter weather driving category, they are infamous for their major insanity and inability to drive without a five-car pileup on one half inch of snow with no hills involved. <laughs> Supermarkets and grocery stores are rapidly stripped of perishables at the slightest threat of winter weather even for those possessing the equivalent of a doomsday ration for a year. Not me. I feel no threat to my home stockpile, nor do I venture out. But when it comes to buying Christmas gifts, winter driving rules do not apply. It was mid-December 1983, with record cold temperatures for almost two weeks. Ice formed on the Arkansas River, and lakes froze solid. Some say so many cows died falling through the ice-covered ponds that frozen beef prices hit an all-time low. <laughs> Winter precipitation began several days before Christmas, and because of the lingering Arctic blast, driving remained treacherous. Being a teacher, school was closed before Christmas break. Oh, joy, it's a magical mix of snow and ice. It's sparkling in the winter sun. That is, until December 23rd, the official Christmas procrastinator shopping day. And the epiphany, if that big thaw came on the 25th, I would be the pariah bearing no gifts in a family that determined your pecking order by the gifts you proffered up. Sign checks and a cheap Christmas card? Bah, humbug! Should have shopped ahead, you straggling holiday has-been. 
I knew the trek would be treacherous. Peril loomed large. Living in a rural area meant no department or chain stores nearby. Determination to purchase gifts for all, no matter what the circumstances, drove me forward. All paved roads leading into town meant conquering a steep incline. My land yacht, my 1982 Monte Carlo, would surely handle these with ease. <laughs> Disappointingly, back I slid, defeated from each attempt, and returned home to lick my magi wounds. Fortunately, like a temporarily observant St. Nick, I spied my faithful and forgotten 73 VW Beetle bug, it was Biscay Blue, which longingly sat at the side of the house, sadly passed over for years. With its back-mounted engine, Blue smiled at me. Hello, Alta Fund! Her sassy bumper and happy headlights beckoned me to come along and give it the old German try. Bluebug and I tried each access into town again, but the inclines proved too steep for even her heavy bottom ness. Defeated by infrastructure, I headed home with the melancholy of empty-handed Christmas shame in my future. I remembered one last chance for egress, Drake Trail. Drake Trail is a winding but relatively incline-free dirt road that loggers and hunters frequent, but is aptly named a trail instead of a road for good reason. Four-wheel drive vehicles and logging trucks view the Drake as a trail for the season only. The trail ends at Highway 167. If Bluebug and I could make it to the end of Drake, we could travel by salted and plowed roads into town. I was plucky in my youthful Christmas enthusiasm. These were the days before cell phones, GPS, internet, and two-day home delivery. <laughs> if you had a jug of water, a flashlight, a blanket, a candy bar, and dry matches, you were considered prepared. Hesitantly, as in you will be walking on butt-busting ice for at least five miles, dummy, I steered blue onto the trailhead. Although dependable, VW Beetles, by virtue of size, have a low clearance. Drake Trail, by virtue of the vehicles that frequented it, even in dry weather, had very high clearance ruts. Drake was now solid sheets of ice, ruts and all. But like the little engine that could, we twisted and chugged along slowly. Even though I could hear the undercarriage being scraped, like a German U-boat snaking through a coral reef, I continued. Approaching the downward slide toward the highway, I felt ebullient as we came to the home stretch. Driving confidence rapidly turned into an uncontrolled free slide, a malfunctioning monorail. Blue's clearance was no longer sufficient to handle the icy ruts. Her wheels were no longer in contact with the road, rather the undercarriage. It skidded atop the icy ruts. Suddenly, we were sliding on the rut track, the undercarriage being the only contact with anything solid. Blue skidded sideways. Brakes in this sort of a situation are kind of like cigarette holders for those wishing to quit smoking. They're useless. Why had I risked Blue for such a commercialized endeavor? 
I knew the bodywork to restore her would be considerably more than the cheap crap I was going to purchase for gifts. <laughs> that was if she stopped before I was deposited on the highway in front of an 18-wheel monster to be smashed to bits. I closed my eyes and waited for the outcome. The steering wheel would be like those on bumper cars, for drivers to perpetually spin with a pretension of they having control. A sad pine sapling, defeated by all the snow and ice, lay bent over the trail and stopped our trajectory, miraculously depositing Blue's wheels back into the ruts. I was relieved, yet I could not admit defeat. Ahead, I could see the highway, a mere 25 yards ahead. Fortunately, and by pure dumb luck, the soft snowy needles of the sapling rested against the passenger side, brushing blue without damaging her. So close, this had to be a sign. <laughs> Former Girl Scouts are trained to be invented. I exited and tried to bend the sapling out of the way, but its girth was too much and the slingshot effect too risky. I thought about snapping off all the needles, but they would find my frozen body before that was accomplished. I imagine being on the six o'clock news. Local woman freezes to death attempting to purchase cheap Christmas gifts. <laughs> then I remembered the knockoff Swiss knife my husband had placed in the glove compartment as a joke when he had stranded her in the icy bottomland years before. Well, if I'm ever stupid enough to drive the bug out on the ice again, I'll use this. Ha <laughs> ha! I saw it on the sapling and spurt. Cheap knockoff knives should never be purchased for an emergency. But after several sessions, the sapling broke free and we made it onto the highway. Being ever so grateful, I followed the state highway to the nearest store, a Target, Greatland in the former Southwest Mall. Shopping at this point had become a dazed afterthought. I raked my arms across the remaining Whitman sampler shelf until the boxes just crashed into the cart. Every child on my list received the same gift, the rema remaining five Play-Doh food factory sets in the toy aisle. Flannel clothing of every kind better be appreciated during the big freeze because that was the choice. Speed shoppers be damned. I was purchased and fully packed with blue for the trip before slippery sundown. My faithful friend would guide the way. Christmas Day would be no less treacherous, but I knew the way now down Drake Trail in a four-wheel drive pickup. <laughs> Bluebug's love for her driver was unconditional and became a Christmas gift I will never forget. Karen Hicks, a resident of Eastern Saline County in Arkansas, has been a teacher for over 30 years and is a true believer in beginning Christmas shopping on January 1st. In our next story here on Tales from the South, Helen Austin takes us to holidays in the French Quarter and Christmas Eve at Galatoire's. That Christmas Eve in New Orleans was one I'll never forget. To begin with, it was something I never expected to happen. 
Growing up in South Mississippi, I'd spent football weekends and New Year's holidays in that fabled city, but Christmas, I was always at home. It was a huge surprise when, in December of 2004, my husband Jerry said we could get away for a short time for the holiday. And what better place to get away to than New Orleans? The decision was made about a week before Christmas Day. We must have gotten the last available room at our favorite French Quarter hotel, the Richelieu. Up on the top floor under a mansard roof, it reminded me of the artist's garret in the opera, La Boheme. I half expected a frail-looking Mimi to knock on the door, asking if we could relight her stub of a candle. There was never any question where we'd spend Christmas Eve. We briefly discussed ending the evening with midnight mass at St. Louis Cathedral. But as far as Jerry and I are concerned, if you haven't been to Galatoire's, you haven't been to New Orleans. And with the trip planned at the last minute, getting a restaurant reservation would have been iffy. Fortunately, Galatoire's not only doesn't require reservations, it doesn't even accept them. You want to eat at Galatoire's? You get in line like everybody else. If you go, wear comfortable shoes because you could be standing for some time. If you've never heard of this New Orleans institution, that may be because Galatoire's doesn't advertise. They don't need to, since Tennessee Williams had Stella Kowalski take her sister, the ill-fated Blanche Dubois, there for dinner in a streetcar named Desire. The restaurant was a favorite of Tennessee's. Most of the waiters can point out his favorite table in a corner by the front windows. The Richelieu Hotel is a few blocks from Jackson Square, across the quarter from Galatoire's, which is on Bourbon Street, just off Canal. As I remember, we set out to walk there a little before seven. People in New Orleans eat later than people in Little Rock, so we figured we'd beat the rush. We also knew, from past experience, that a party of two could expect to be seated much sooner than a larger group. We weren't disappointed. There wasn't even much of a line outside the restaurant, and within five minutes, we were through the door. Though a crowd waited in the holding area, we were told if we didn't mind being seated next to the coat rack at the entrance, we could be seated right away. We didn't mind. The real surprise was our waiter, Shannon. That's a name which, gender-wise, can go either way. But this Shannon was a woman, one of the first in the restaurant's 100-year history. We later learned she was the first Galatoire's waiter to become pregnant during her tenure. <laughs> Speaking in purest yat, Shannon took our order. For those who don't know, yat is a New Orleans dialect which takes its name from the popular greeting, where you at? <laughs> Freely translated, this means, how are you doing? It is sometimes preceded by the words, hey, man, as in, hey, man, where yat? <laughs> Visitors to New Orleans hearing yat for the first time are understandably confused. It doesn't sound at all Southern. After more than 10 years, 
I'm not entirely sure what I had to eat that evening. Before we ordered, the usual hot French bread was set down, rolled in a napkin, right on the tablecloth. I probably began my meal with a house specialty, shrimp remoulade, served in the classic manner of a shredded iceberg lettuce. Pompano is another specialty, so I had that for my entree. Shannon said they had soft-shell crabs, so that's what Jerry ordered. But food is only one of the reasons for going to Galatoire's. The restaurant's detractors will tell you it isn't the best food in New Orleans, though they have to admit it's still pretty doggone good. And the mirrors lining the walls give it the look of a barber shop. The main reason for going to Galatoire's is that it's like a private club anyone can belong to. Waiters greet you like a regular customer, even if they've never seen you before. Catch someone's eye in one of the mirrors, and you'll likely get a smile, unless that someone's mouth is full. Even at lunch on a weekday, the atmosphere is festive. Jerry and I always finish a Galatoire's dinner with Café Brulot, a dessert drink made with coffee, cognac, and Grand Marnier. It's prepared tableside in a sort of round-bottomed copper chafing dish called a Brulot pot. When the waiter applies a lighted match, everyone in the vicinity turns to watch the show. Those who've never seen it before are particularly entertained. Because of all this attention, I like to touch up my lipstick beforehand. <laughs> Café Brulot, according to the menu, may be ordered for a minimum of two people. But that order makes at least four Demetas servings. Sipping on our first cup, Jerry and I looked at the still healthful Brulot pot and pondered. After a drink before dinner and a couple of glasses of wine, could we finish it off? Shannon helped her make, us make up our minds. Glancing from our happy faces to the source of our happiness, she asked, You walking? <laughs> we nodded. Without another word, she proceeded efficiently to ladle the remaining Brulot into polystyrene go cups, which she presented with the bill. <laughs> snow was predicted for the next day, the first Christmas snow New Orleans had seen in 50 years. The temperature had already dropped when we were in the restaurant, and the walk back to the hotel got a little nippy. But sipping on our second cup of Café Brulot, our hands and hearts were warm. As we fell into bed, we heard the bells ring out from St. Louis Cathedral. So much for Midnight Mass. <laughs>Ellen Austin was a food editor at the Arkansas Democrat in the 1980s. Her husband, Jerry, has been retired from custom audio and video for six years. So far, they have managed not to kill each other. <laughs> so how about our stories and storytellers tonight? <laughs> Uh, 
Thank you to all of our writers. Thank you to our live audience here at the Capitol Hotel. And thank you to UALR Public Radio. Tales from the South is presented by Timonos Publishing Company and the Midnight Muse Writing Workshops. Additional support provided by UALR School of Mass Communications, the Writers' Colony at Derry Hollow, Little Rock Soiree Magazine, UALR's Department of Rhetoric and Writing, the North Little Rock Visitors Bureau, the Arkansas Arts Council, and the Oxford American, the Southern Magazine of Good Writing. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Stitcher Smart Radio, and you can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from all Southerners. More can be found at talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next week for another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at robinwoodbnb.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at bakerhousenlr.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive. And we'll see you next week on Tales from the South.
Stay. 